Welcome to The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus. This show is about the stories, assumptions, and perspectives that either create or block our ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with those that are in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm a leadership coach and facilitator with a relentless curiosity for helping people, teams, and organizations thrive in pursuit of making their vision and purpose a reality. The goal is to bring you new insights, perspectives, and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes. Curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly. And community, where we grow together. Let's explore the leadership mind. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Leadership Mind podcast. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus. And today I'm joined by James Hereford, who um, came in a network um, and, and met me kind of serendipitously. And um, James is a administrator within the healthcare system and has been for a long time, um, but comes to it by kind of a circuitous path, starting out in mathematics, working his way through lean management and TQM. And um, today we're going to talk to him about his journey and how he got into the space in healthcare and in such leadership positions. Currently, he's the CEO at Fairview Health Services. Um, but what I also want to hear about from James is what's the landscape of leadership within the healthcare system now, given everything that's going on with COVID? We hear so much from leaders that are out there in the corporate space. Uh, what's it like to be a leader on the front lines um, dealing with, you know, currently Omicron and, and COVID in, in year two? So, James, welcome. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, when you and I spoke before, you were giving me kind of some of your backstory, which I just thought was fascinating. I, I love learning about where people come from because I think that every step along our journey is information that kind of creates, you know, who we become, especially when we take on roles of prominence and in, in, uh, positions of leadership like you have. Um, what's kind of the origin story? You know, right now you're the CEO <laughs> of a large healthcare group, you know, through a global pandemic. Uh, where did this begin for you? Well, I, uh, I was born in Montana. Uh, we, uh, my father had a ranch in Western Montana. I was the youngest of six kids. And there's a pretty good distance between myself and the next closest brother. So I'm fairly confident that given the age of my parents when I was born, I was not a planned child. But uh, as I like to tell my uh, older siblings, it took them, my parents a while, but they finally got it right. Uh, <laughs> that's a running joke i bet that's going, yeah. that's going for years yeah Let me ask you about uh, that youngest of six and and what's the age gap between you and and the next oldest uh it was 11 years 11 years so what was that like growing up was it like having five aunts and uncles um were they more like cousins or were they really like siblings uh much more like uh, cousins or in the older case of my oldest sister, uh, a, uh, an aunt or uh, a, uh, a you know, family member, but not really a sib. Uh, Peggy was quite a bit older than, than I was. Uh, and it, she was out of the house, obviously, by the time I came along. Uh, so, yeah, it was different. It was a little bit, it's kind of nice in the sense that you get the benefits of being the youngest. So, you know, I think my parents gave me quite a bit of uh, room. I think their uh, working assumption was, hey, we got five. If the sixth one makes it or not, you know, we're okay. Um, but you, uh, you know, you still are um, 
you know, it's almost like being an only child. So I got a fair amount of focus too, in terms of uh, some of the things that I wanted to do, whether it was sports or academics. So, um, but it also meant chores on the, on the ranch were uh, much more focused on me, which helped me motivate me to pay more attention in school and clearly uh, dictated. I didn't want to be a rancher when I grew up. Yeah. What age did that become clear to you? <laughs> uh, I probably was, I don't know, I was probably six or seven. And my dad got me up in the middle of the night to go check the cows uh, who were calving. It was calving season. And we were bumping around in the pickup truck out in the middle of the field uh, and uh, checking cows. Sure enough, cows down, calving. Uh, my dad got out to check the cow, uh, said, well, you know, clearly uh, we've, this is going to be a problem. Uh, I think you are going to have to turn this calf. Now, the operative pronoun is you. So my dad decided that was the time in which I should learn how to uh, turn a breech calf. And uh, uh, I just had this, this brief moment of clarity that I'd still sticks with me. Of It was in the middle of the night. It was a little, you know, it was dark. It's cold, a little blowy, Montana. Um, I'm up to my, you know, little shoulders in cow. Uh, and it's hard trying to, you know, turn a, a, a calf. It's uh, not a trivial procedure. Uh, and uh, just had this moment of clarity of this is not what I want to do for a living. Uh, this is hard work. And, you know, I generally knew that because you know, there weren't many vacations. My dad didn't take a lot of time away from the ranch, even though that was kind of his retirement ranch. It was a pretty, pretty demanding life. And so uh, that uh, motivated me to go a different direction. So six years old, you're out there in the middle of the night in the cold turning a calf. I imagine a newborn calf doesn't weigh that much more or less than a six-year-old person. So yeah, it's not that much uh, much of a delta. So pretty pretty significant uh, task, and you had clarity that moment of some life choices, which which I think is quite significant. Uh, my my son currently is you know he's seven years old, going on eight. And I can't even fathom uh, getting him up in the morning to go out in the middle of the night in the cold to do just about anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, different era, right? Different yes. era. Different yes. expectations. My parents oh. were old enough. My dad was born in 1911 and my mom was born in I think, 1916. Uh, so, you know, they were both, they grew up in the depression and uh, they were uh, good, hearty stock to say the least. And, and their expectation wasn't that one of the six of you would take over the, the ranch, because as you said, this was a kind of retirement thing, so it wasn't a multi-generational operation. Was there any expectation for that? I think my dad would have loved if one of the brothers would have stepped up and taken it on, but uh, none of them showed any real interest in it. Maybe for similar reasons to, to you, it would seem. Yeah, yeah. So... You have this light bulb moment at six years old, uh, but you're not going to be out of the house for another 12 years. So how did that kind of reframe that that season of your life before you could really start making choices for yourself? Well, it's it's not like you suddenly decide your you know, your avocation is going to be different. Uh, and it didn't lessen the chores on the ranch all that much. But, um, you know, I always liked sports. I was, you know, back in those days, you could be a play, you know, four seasons. Uh, four different sports. You didn't have to specialize. So, you know, it was baseball, football, basketball, uh, you know, track, or uh, later on it became uh, tennis. Um, but, you know, I play four sports. Uh, I got, uh, I was pretty good academically. So uh, tried to keep a, you know, uh, 
my grade point up, average up, make sure I had plenty of opportunities there. Uh, so it was as much thinking about clearly my future is not going to be, uh, or I would hope it wasn't going to be on the ranch. So what are my options going to be? And so uh, ended up going to uh, university at Montana State and uh, got uh, degrees, uh, undergraduate and then master's degree in mathematics, uh, largely because it was the uh, easiest uh, approach for me because I didn't have labs and I didn't, you know, it allowed me to uh, flexibility to do other things. And uh, so ended up uh, going to going to university and uh, doing fairly well and then ended up because with a master's degree in math in Montana, you know, you, the uh, pursuits are somewhat limited. So I ended up coaching basketball and uh, teaching math in a uh, school in the uh, uh, middle of Montana, a town called Lewistown. Uh, and did that for seven years. So what were some of the um, lessons that you deployed when you think about growing these young people as, you know, on the team as basketball players, as leaders? Well, you know, how old were you at that time? What life experience did you have to bring to them around how to be leaders on this team and how to win together? Well, you know, it's kind of ironic now because at the time I felt so old, but when I started, I was you know, I was 23 years old and seniors in high school were 17 or 18. I wasn't much older than them, but, you know, basketball in Montana it was, and it was fun because uh, at that time in Montana, the girls basketball season was in the fall and the boys was in the winter. And so I'd go into the gym in August and come out in March uh, and coach the girls, then coach the boys. Um, so it was, um, you know, I, there was, uh, I've often said I've learned every good leadership lesson there is to learn uh, coaching high school basketball in a small town in Montana. Um, you know, you, you have to have structure and you have, you're so dependent on your people, right? In this case, teenagers uh, with all of the uh, uh, things that go along with being a teenager, not always the most focused, uh, sometimes a little difficult to uh, get to buy in, but it was magical when they did. And uh, we had a lot of success there. Um, but it's also, a, you know, the, it was a very political position being a head coach in a, on a, in a team where on any given Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, I'd have anywhere from two to 5,000 people in the gym uh, watching our games because central Montana, this is the entertainment, you know, especially in the wintertime. Uh, so you'd have uh, you know, fairly well attended basketball games, but it was also a small town. So you show up in the grocery store, there's no shortage of people who thought they knew how to coach and had no, uh, you know, weren't all that shy about telling me how it should be done or, uh, you know, I should be playing their son or daughter more or what have you. So I learned a lot about both, how do you, how do you motivate and structure systematically a program towards excellence? And how do you engage people? Um, but then also how do you, deal with the politics of everything that you have to deal with going uh, that kind of surrounds that. What were some of those key political lessons? Cause that is a, that must've been a fascinating experience at that age uh, to have parents. So these people are older than you coming to you with um, unsolicited feedback, criticism, judgment, so on and so forth. Well, yeah. And I, I, I should say I, I was, very fortunate. I had great mentors, uh, former coaches of mine that were uh, people I could always kind of call on. Um, but I think the biggest thing I learned was um, you have to 
not get triggered and have a, an emotional response. Because, I mean, it's not like when kids and parents, when parents come to you about their kids, it, it's largely an emotional and uh, a, uh, you know, often it's their own uh, identification wrapped up in it. Uh, so if you get triggered and get emotional, it's going to go nowhere fast, right? So being clear about your principles and, you know, how you work and how kids earn playing time and what you're expecting, uh, and then trying to make sure that you stay fairly level uh, and with those uh, encounters that happen so that you don't get triggered emotionally. Because most of the mistakes I made was when somebody, you know, made me mad, pissed me off, uh, and I'd react emotionally because it was an unfair, you know, oh, you favor this person versus that person. Uh, well, that's a perception and you've got to be able to deal with uh, these external perceptions that you don't have control over, but you also can't allow them to control you uh, by the way that they force you to react. And so um, I think that was one of the most valuable lessons is, you know, stay calm, carry on basically. I, I, I think that principle is true across all leadership, no matter where you are, what level uh, on a daily basis to be able to emotionally regulate and have compassion and empathy for another person's experience while holding your boundaries and being able to clearly articulate expectations and principles in, in your perspective. Um, how does that play out for you today, James? And, and I, want to, I don't want to completely fast forward. I want to kind of stay in this present, but I'm just curious when you think about this notion of um, not getting emotionally hijacked. And I think about the, the pressure that uh, is the CEO of a healthcare um, group, you know, in the current climate must be um, and has been. How does that show up for you on a daily basis? And do you have a process? <clears throat> what is it? Has it become second nature because you've been practicing this for so long? Well, so we're a fairly large system. So, you know, six and a half billion dollars of total revenue. We have 11 hospitals, uh, you know, uh, if I, uh, if you include faculty and employed a couple thousand physicians. Uh, so first of all, every decision you make, there's always going to be somebody that is unhappy with it. Um, but you also have communities and labor unions and activist groups. And so there's never any shortage of people who uh, think that you're not doing something right. And, uh, but I think it does come back to, uh, you know, being clear about why we're doing things uh, and what the principles are, right? Are we doing the best things for our patients and the communities we serve? At, at the heart, that's what we're here for. Um, and trying to make decisions that are consistent uh, with that. Um, and to really be clear about the, you know, the, the deliberation, if you will, how do, because they're, the, you know, the thing about being a CEO is none of the easy decisions come to you. Those are all solved well before they get there. So there's all these judgments about, uh, you know, 4951 kind of, well, we could go either way here. There are pros and cons in either direction. Um, but being able to come back to first principles, you know, what solid ground are we standing on? Uh, how do we reach this decision? And then once you make that decision, uh, to be able to simultaneously, I think this is the hardest part is stick with it while still staying open to you get new information. And sometimes that new information informs, you know what, that wasn't the best decision. 
and we have to go a different direction or we should go a different direction. And that's challenging because it's easy. Uh, you know, the, the other problem with the CEO job is your ego gets fed a lot. All right. You're the CEO, you know, you're special, blah, 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 blah. And so it, the, the trap is you fall into this infallibility of, well, I made the decision. It must be right, you know, by definition, because I made it. Um, and that's where I, I'd like to think uh, my uh, statistical training and uh, research training helps uh, because, uh, you know, I'm a Bayesian statistician at heart. I always, you know, I'm ready to uh, establish my priors, but update with new information uh, to say, oh, that was a good decision based on what we had then. Now we have new information. And this, this pandemic has driven that home. I mean, the, the rate at which we have learned over the last, you know, almost three years now uh, has been uh, incredible. And the things we thought were true at the outset of this pandemic and what we know now um, are fundamentally different. And, and, it, and that continues to be the case, you know, as we confront this Omicron variant. How do you stay grounded through all of this? And you just mentioned, you know, being a statistician and being able to use um, that kind of analytical rigor and that mindset, but what keeps you grounded in um, staving off the, 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 the praise and the, you know, the, the privilege that comes with the title uh, of CEO, the recognition that um, decisions are going to be made incorrectly. I mean, you, you're making the best decision possible, but to be able to be humble enough to accept that and move on and and not carry on the burden of each of these things yourself. But you, you seem to come from a very grounded place, James. That um, that you don't you don't carry the weight of you know past mistakes, errors, or bad decisions with you. You look, can look at it more logically, um, but that also there's a piece of empathy to it. There's a piece of I am doing the best for people. It's not all logic. You know, you're holding you're holding space for both. How do you how do you do that? Well. I don't know, the best you can in any given day. I, I, it, I think it's helpful for me um, that I did come from, you know, a small, small town, grew up on a ranch, work ethic, all of that. But one of the things that was very true, and I believe it's still true today, is, you know, it, it, our mental image of, you know, country life or being a rancher is this rugged independence. But that's not the case at all. Because you're dependent on your neighbors and you're dependent on the community for so many things. Um, you know, your neighbors are always helping you out. Oh, it's branding uh, time. Well, let's go over and help the neighbors. They're going to come help you. Um, you know, something happens, the, you know, cows get out, the fence breaks, whatever. It's always a community uh, of some level that comes together. And so I think that helps. Uh, it also helps, frankly, that <laughs> My wife has her PhD in industrial organizational psychology. So uh, one of your colleagues. So if she, if I get too full of myself, I, Joy's never uh, afraid to uh, just ask that right question to uh, kind of bring me back to uh, my reality. Uh, a powerful question at just the right time. Yes. Um, we're, we're both fortunate because uh, when I was at Stanford, uh, Ed Shine lived across the street. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, the master of questions. Yeah. And so and who was Joy's hero? And so he was doing some work with us uh, just to keep engaged. At that point, Ed was probably in his early 80s. 
but he just, you know, he's an intellect. He wants to engage. He was doing some work at Stanford with us. But the Joy and I would take him out to dinner. Uh, just to, he was living there. His, his wife had passed away, and his, uh, you know, he was uh, always up for a, a good dinner and loved his desserts. And so, having that person as well involved in your life about, you know, how to ask good questions and to be able to call it when he thought you were being a little too arrogant uh, was also quite helpful. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm getting chills just thinking about you know being able to have dinner with with uh, Ed Shine just uh, as a. Uh, as a student of his work too, and for the people that are listening, uh, you know, one of kind of the, the, the founding authors and researchers in organizational culture, uh, really a leader in, in the space. Um, and uh, a lot of the work that's being done today and the research being done today is all, you know, on the foundation of, of his work. So truly, you know, incredible work that he, that he had done. Um, Let's let's go back to this time when you were at Stanford, James. You you come out of um, TQM, right? Um, well, actually, let's go back a little bit further here. So you were a high school basketball coach, and um, pretty profound experience, I would imagine. Teams, you know, playing in front of thousands of fans, you being challenged in the spotlight. Um, what was the decision to to step away from that and move into, you know? Uh, you know, process improvement and, and lean. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily a direct uh, line between those two because uh, my standard throwaway line is uh, you can only teach algebra two trig so many years in a row before the thrill is gone. Uh, it, there is a certain repetitiveness to being a high school uh, teacher. Uh, I was, I, I uh, was not feeling all that intellectually stimulated, even though I, I, really enjoyed coaching. And, uh, you know, that was always a, a, a challenging, you know, every year was different. Uh, every team was different, but it just intellectually, it, it just wasn't there. So I left to go to the University of Washington uh, to work on my PhD in statistics. And uh, we were, uh, I was in uh, my program and uh, we had both our first and second child, and I got very revenue motivated uh, and uh, ended up doing some consulting. I was doing some uh, 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 contract work, there we go, uh, for Boeing, doing some teaching because they were starting the 777 build and they were implementing TQM and they had called the Department of Statistics uh, at Washington and said, we need somebody with platform skills who knows about DOE and uh, SPC and uh, the department chair had sent around an email uh, and this is like 1991. Uh, so email was a fairly novel thing in and of itself uh, and said, you know, Boeing's looking for this. And I didn't know what any of those three letter acronyms meant, but when it got down to the next paragraph, it said, well, we're paying $50 or they're paying $50 an hour contractors wages. I immediately raised my hand and said, yeah, I'm in. Uh, and, uh, you know, it went home, uh, read some Deming, read some uh, Duran, read some Feigenbaum to try to learn out, well, what is this TQM thing? And it, it really was appealing to me, right? It's the, the essence of it is, you know, uh, putting some fairly simple and straightforward statistical tools in the hands of the people actually doing the work and having them monitor and improve their own quality. Well, that made sense to me. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, started doing some teaching and then ended up doing some project work 
which then led to a little bit of consulting around Boeing, all the while I was trying to finish my, uh, my thesis, my dissertation. And um, one of my clients ended up being kind of this total coincidence was Group Health Cooperative, uh, a health maintenance organization in Seattle. And I literally did not know anything about healthcare. I mean, my experience of healthcare was basically, uh, you know, the dentist and some athletic trainers along the way, uh, but didn't know anything about the business of healthcare or how it worked. Or, but, uh, you know, they needed some help and they were one to hire a consultant. And frankly, I fell in love with healthcare during that time. Um, smart people everywhere. Uh, you know, it's an amazing place. They're so mission oriented, which was very different than, you know, uh, working at Boeing. Not that there's, you know, not a strong purpose, and but it is so different being in a healthcare organization where, you know, you have this kind of fundamental mission to help people. Uh, and frankly, their processes were so messy and irrational. I couldn't help but add some value. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so when the opportunity came to, uh, they offered me a job to uh, do some, be an internal, uh, I thought, this is great, but I'm, I'm going to, I'll do this for a little bit because uh, I don't really like consulting because you always have to sell the next engagement, you know, and all that. You have to be out there uh, trying to develop business all the time. This will be great. And I'll get my dissertation done and then I'll go on and, you know, be an academic. Well, I never did get the dissertation done. Uh, I'm ABD, uh, because I just got so enthralled with healthcare. And then within group health, you know, as a, both an insurance company and a care delivery system, um, it just provided this incredibly practical, uh, kind of MHA program for me to go put my nose in various people's business and learn about care delivery and all its different manifestations, learn about the health plan, learn about administration, uh, so it was really a delightful experience, uh, but that's how I got from uh, being a high school math teacher. The bridge was really my PhD program in statistics uh, and financial need, which led me to Boeing and then, you know, luck, which led me into healthcare. And once you got into healthcare, it was just uh, this, this drive for curiosity um, that, that, that element that wasn't being fed after teaching algebra for, uh, you know, a number of years that you were like in this sandbox, so there was so much to learn. And it was all purpose-driven and aligned with your values. Um, obviously having stuck your nose in all those places, you learned a lot, you added a lot of value and you have, you know, grown into a number of different executive positions in different healthcare organizations. When you think about that trajectory and that um, that path that you grew on, what are some of the vital lessons that that you could share to other people that are at that director level and aspire to be a CEO or in the C-suite, um, but are not able to cross that chasm? They don't understand the shift in what leadership is at a director level leading a function to leading an enterprise. Yeah, I think there's, at least for me, there was a couple of a couple of key, I think, lessons in there. Um, you know, I really started out much more as an individual contributor and, you know, go in and apply your expertise in various areas and, you know, engage people. And, but you were, the, you were the expert, right? And um, I think one of the biggest transition points that I had to make was going from uh, being the expert 
and the person who's bringing this key skill that everybody uh, is, you know, pulling on and wants you to want you there, uh, to being much more of a uh, a supporter of other people, uh, a generalist who, you know, is has to work through others. Uh, I think that's one of the most difficult. Uh, uh, anxiety producing things for a lot of people, because you fundamentally have to recognize that you cannot be successful uh, directly. It's going to be indirectly through other people. And I'd like to think that my coaching background helped me because that was kind of, uh, I learned early on, you know, it did, didn't matter how good a player I was. What mattered was how good the players were on the floor. Uh, same thing as a, as a leader. The other thing I think that um, helped me was I had the a good fortune in, in at group health was um, having the opportunity to go work on really hard problems or really big opportunities uh, and really s- kind of sought those out um, because I, I and there's risk in that. Um, yeah. But if you want to be able to progress, because that, you know, that pyramid gets fairly narrow as you go up. Uh, you have to there, you have to be able to uh, deal with the risk reward curve of uh, are you going to take bigger risks are you going to try things uh, get involved with hard projects or speculative ventures that may not pay off and may have a negative impact on your career uh, or are you going to try to just fight your way up uh, you know line over line over line uh, with everybody else and uh, I had the good fortune of being able to uh, really work on some amazing things, uh, whether it was, you know, the web was coming along. And so uh, we really led that effort in terms of uh, creating one of the largest web-based clinical platforms around at one point before Kaiser came along and squashed us like a bug. Um, But, uh, or, you know, implementation of Epic and really trying to uh, reimagine primary care and care delivery based on the electronic health record or, the implementation of lean at a, as, a, as a systemic profit, property. So those are the two things that I think um, have really paid dividends for me. And then the other thing I think is just continuing to uh, be intellectually curious because uh, healthcare is a, an amazing field and it evolves so rapidly. There's so much new uh, information being generated, uh, new approaches, new businesses, uh, that you, um, if you stand still, uh, your information, your uh, your uh, currency is going to get dated quite quickly. When you think about these pr- principles of of providing support, shifting from being an individual contributor, taking those risks, and being you know tirelessly curious, um, what was your mindset as you started to adopt those? Did it did it come from um, making some significant missteps and, and, you know, learning the hard way. Um, was it something that was very intentional for you to, to apply these things? Um, you know, it's a great question. Masuman. I, I don't know that it, it was so much a intentionality as an affinity. Um, cause I, I always liked the, you know, oh, this looks interesting and hard and kind of, uh, had a, a bias towards that that work. And um, I think what also has helped me is a bit of a bias towards action. Uh, it's probably why I, it's a good thing I didn't end up as an academic. 
Um, you know, that it, uh, I liked, I liked the learning and I liked the conceptual aspects of being an academic, but uh, ultimately, unless I was applying it, unless I was leaning into real change, it didn't feel all that gratifying. Um, so I, I think that it wasn't so much a planful, I'm going to do this so I can accomplish these things as, oh, this looks good. It's, and then, you know, I, I wasn't always successful. There are no matter what you're doing, there's going to be failures within that endeavor, right? Uh, bumps along the road. And I think that there's a certain amount of, I don't know whether it's stubbornness, hubris, self-confidence, you've got to stick with things and be vulnerable at times within that. Admit that you're, you are fallible. Because if you think you're going to get into something hard and complex or new and exciting and bat 1000, you're not. Uh, so you have to be willing to accept your failures and be vulnerable about those and, you know, be public about it. Hey, we, I screwed this one up. I thought this and this didn't occur or, um, you know, I, I made a mistake. I made a, you know, I had this information, but I didn't really fully understand it. And now I have better information or I better understand it. And here's where I think we're at. What do you think? And uh, so that, you know, I think paid dividends. It wasn't so much the, the, the large scale failure. It was the millions of little failures that sure. can occur on a day to day basis. But sticking with it and not giving up and being a bit stubborn and, you know, maybe egotistical enough to think eventually you're going to win, win out on this uh, certainly helps. Yeah, I mean, you're speaking to having enough confidence to, to push through, to have the resilience during those hard times and having the vulnerability to um, actually take advantage of the failure as a lesson learned, as an opportunity to build trust. You know, it's when we skip over the vulnerability in which we don't take ownership or the lesson learned that we, you know, um, we miss the value that's provided in that. Again, in the context of the smaller failures, it's, it's a lot easier to do that. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious about when you think about leadership and leadership challenges and specifically in healthcare, again, we're, you know, maybe a lot further into this pandemic than, than any of us thought. I remember in the, in the very beginning of the pandemic, um, I had kind of a, um, a bunch of friends and we were putting a wager out there on when we thought it would end and when mm -hmm. you know, things would open back up. And I think things were closing down, you know, in, um, in March, uh, and, and we were talking about, uh, oh, maybe around the 4th of July. So that just shows us, you know, what do I know? I'm not in healthcare. I'm just some average uh, person, but how little, you know, had any grasp on what this is. And when you think of the landscape of where we are today, what are the biggest challenges that you foresee for the leaders that are in your organization or in any other organization for that matter? Um, given that the world is so different and we're not going back to what was. Well, you shouldn't feel too badly uh, about your prediction because almost everybody else has been wrong about their predictions, uh, including some incredibly smart uh, virologist, epidemiologist, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it, they call it a novel, novel coronavirus for a reason. I mean, this is new. Yeah. Uh, and I do, I remember back to that March, April, May timeframe when, you know, we're sitting here, we had our first case, I think it was the first week of March of 2020. Seattle was, how did the outbreak in uh, the, uh, the skilled nursing facility, New York, uh, Lombard, Italy, and then Wuhan. 
and that's what we had to learn from. And you know, we were trying to find uh, uh, refrigerated uh, trailers to put dead bodies because that's what we were afraid of. So don't feel bad that you didn't get it right. And frankly, you know, I remember what a little uh, last March, April, when the vaccines were starting to become fairly prevalent, and we're thinking next summer is going to be you know, that's it. We're going to come out. This is becoming an endemic. And now here's where we're at again. So um, I think that it's kind of a double challenge. Without the pandemic, healthcare in the U.S. has significant challenges, right? We are increasingly unaffordable to people. And it, it's not, oh, the poor can't access care. No, it's people who have good jobs, who have healthcare benefits, who increasingly can't afford necessary care because of the cost shares, premiums, deductibles, et cetera. Uh, and they're having to make clinical healthcare decisions based on financial capability. That was is underlying all of this, right? And then you also have this incredibly uh, aggressive time in terms of technology advancements. And healthcare has been a slow adopter to that. I mean, one of the good things that came out of the pandemic was we actually started doing a lot more virtual care um, and payers paid for virtual care and you saw the uptick. Um, so you have that. And then a quick question there. Yeah. Uh, the uptick that you're speaking to there was the uptick in the amount of virtual care yes. opportunities. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we went from doing, you know, a couple of thousand virtual visits a year to a couple of thousand virtual visits a week yeah. uh, in about a three month period, um, which, and you know, the, the reimbursement change payers would said they would pay for it or were forced to pay for it as the case may be. Um, but it just showed how fast healthcare could change uh, if you had right economic alignment, the proper motivation. But that's certainly a driving force towards the need to change in healthcare. You also have, uh, you know, we are we're living in this time of incredible expansion of clinical knowledge. Uh, there's a there's an article I read that I use in a speech. If you were a, a med student in 1950, and you happen to be gifted enough to learn the entire body of clinical knowledge in 1950, at the rate clinical knowledge was expanding at that point, you would not expect that body of knowledge to double for another 50 years, okay? Now, let's say you're a, a med student in 2020 and you were really a gifted student and you learned that knowledge, that body of knowledge to double. So what we know, we're in this amazing kind of uh, golden age of bioscience, which also is gonna change the way that we think about how we deliver healthcare. We're gonna be able to be much more preventative. We're gonna be able to be much more targeted. Uh, precision medicine is gonna become a reality. And we're just starting to see, you know, the kind of genomic uh, advances, CRISPR and others, the mRNA vaccines, you know, that promise, uh, you know, more generalized approach to cancer and various other things. We're, this is a golden age. So you have these three forces, economics, technology, and clinical medicine. Um, so healthcare had to change. So we were already in a transformation environment and then put on a pandemic on top of that. And so the trick, as far as I can see, is how do we continue to move forward with dealing with the transformation 
But being able to deal with the, the crisis in front of us, which is the pandemic, not let the pandemic, you know, completely uh, outweigh and, and set aside the transformation, because at some point the pandemic turns into an endemic and we have to get on with the business of healthcare. And in many ways, it's accelerated all those forces this pandemic has. And so it's gonna be that much more important for healthcare systems and healthcare leaders to drive that kind of transformative approach uh, to care delivery. So that's, that's been the, the ongoing challenge for me and my team and you know, is how do, you, how do you have a foot in both of those canoes? You've gotta deal with the pandemic, but you can't ignore the underlying challenges that are in healthcare that we have got to deal with as a system. What have you seen that has been effective or successful in having a foot in both canoes and, you know, staying down the river? Well, I think uh, some of the things that uh, the pandemic has done is it's forced us to be much more of a system. That's good. So it's not, you know, a hospital kind of separated from uh, the provider practice or another hospital or the academic separated from the community. I think it's, it's forced us to be much more of a system, but I think clarity is more important uh, now than ever. And then the ability to figure out how do you prioritize? Because you just can't pay attention to everything. So you have to prioritize. You have to be able to say, no, these are the small, finite number of things that we want to do. And that's, I think the biggest trick in a large system, because, you know, everybody has their priorities. That's the, the problem is they're not shared. So how do you have a system that allows you to get to uh, an agreement around these are the priorities, these are the things we're going to focus on while we deal with this pandemic? And, you know, I'd, I'd give us a solid C plus in that, maybe a B minus. Um, we're getting better at it, but it's, that's, uh, it's a hard challenge, uh, especially when, you know, our frontline workers are MD, PhDs. They're really smart people who have really good ideas and things that they want to pursue. Um, but you can't pursue them all and deal with the pandemic. You can't pursue them all, even if you don't have a pandemic. But with a pandemic, it's impossible. And that is true in any organization that you can't pursue them all. And that's a that is a real challenge that exists, you know, across the board, James. Um, and I think to your point, in sometimes um, exasperated by having so many smart people with so many great ideas, right. uh, yet you can't do them all. Um, well, it was instructive to me, you know, Jobs, uh, Steve Jobs at Apple, you know, when he came back, uh, you know, he narrowed down the focus to like four things because they, they had literally, you know, hundreds of things going on. He said, no, we're going to focus on these four things. And so, you know, even in an environment like that, incredibly creative, uh, you know, fairly well positioned, uh, the dividends of having that kind of focus certainly paid off in terms of where Apple's positioned today. Yeah. What do you see for the future of healthcare coming out of the pandemic? Thematically, is there anything that stands out to you? Well, I, th I think uh, we're still going to, uh, there's, I think this year there was $30 billion spent on uh, private equity and uh, 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 startup uh, investments. Um, that's probably gonna go up another 50% this year. So I think we're gonna see a lot more innovation in healthcare generally. Uh, now the trick is how do we systematize that? You know, So we're starting to think of ourselves almost as curators 
of all of this because you want to be able to homogenize and turn that into a systemic approach and not just have a bunch of kind of uh, complexity and loose, every, you know, the 400 apps on your phone to get various things done in healthcare, you know, people still want simplicity. Uh, so uh, I think that's going to be one of the things. The pandemic has no doubt weakened the, uh, the healthcare system and hospitals specifically. You know, we look at the data and if you look at uh, where the total spend is, over half is in hospitals. But if you look at average margins now in hospitals, it's below 1%. And we are the most capital intensive places around. Um, you know, I used to say it's, you know, in Palo Alto at Stanford, the most expensive real estate in Palo Alto was my ORs at Stanford uh, Hospital. Because you think about the money that you spend and the value of what happens there. Um, so that's going to be a challenge. And I think that might uh, engender an environment where we see a lot of more merger acquisition, people looking for scale. Uh, a lot more, uh, both vertical and horizontal uh, integration. But my belief is it's going to be the organizations that can drive innovation uh, and leveraging these kind of outside forces that are really going to be the successful ones. And when you think about the um, the future of, of affordability in, in healthcare and that particular challenge, um, what are things that hospitals are thinking about to 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 tackle that? Because I would imagine that it, it becomes a challenge for you as well, if you think about your customers not being able to afford services. Well, it's certainly a challenge. You know, I think the, 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 there's an inevitability to care delivery systems taking on more of the economic risk mm -hmm. uh, because we've been passing it on to uh, individual consumers for the last 15 years and they can't afford it. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure who else is going to take it on, but care delivery systems. Uh, it's like the old joke when you sit down at the poker table and you play for, you know, 30 minutes and you don't know who the sucker is at the table. It's you. Well, you know, that's that's going to be care delivery system. We're going to be the people who have to take that economic uh, medical inflation. on. Um, but, you know, I think that's a good thing. I think we can be much with aligned incentives. We can be much better at being prevention focused because, you know, the thing we talk about is. If our business model is based on inappropriate utilization, we got a big problem. So the trick is how do we make sure we get as upstream as possible and that we have the right amount of physical capacity to deal with appropriate utilization and drive down you know, unnecessary variation, do a great job on prevention, primary and secondary prevention. I think those are all things that a, you know, a, a, a healthcare system can do um, to be able to manage that total cost of care. The question is going to be, what's the relationship with the payers, whether it's the government employers or uh, traditional indemnity players, uh, health plans? Uh, you know, can we get the kind of economic alignment um, that makes sense? Yeah, well, um, I'm hopeful with leaders like you um, responsible for the innovation and change in, in the future of healthcare, James. And um I want to thank you so much for your time. This has been an incredibly enriching and informative conversation. And um, honestly, your your um, your drive for uh, curiosity and learning is is really inspiring. And so, thank you for sharing that. And um, for anybody that wants to reach out to you, connect offline. Where's a good place for people to to find you out there on the web? Uh, well, LinkedIn is probably the best. Um, and if you just search for James Hereford, H-E-R-E-F-O-R-D, you can find it. 
and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's always fun to interact with people all over the all over the country. So that's been a good uh, a good mechanism to do that. Definitely. Well, James, thank you so much, and and have a wonderful day. Really enjoyed it. Best to you. Thanks for joining us for another episode where we explore the leadership mind. Remember, the mind is where the connection between our being and doing, our intent and our actions. Make sure to visit our website, MassimoBacchus.com, where you can like and subscribe to the show on Spotify, Anchor FM, and Apple, so you'll never miss an episode. To download my Conscious Communication Workbook to support you in turning toxic conflict into collaborative gold, please visit MassimoBacchus.com forward slash workbook. While you're at it, if you found the episode valuable, please rate the podcast on your preferred platform and share it with your community so others can join and listen as well. Until next week, remember to lead with compassion, curiosity, and gratitude. Leadership is a gift.